Living Stones is a weekly conversation about living a truly Catholic life. Deacon Harold Burke Sivers and Ken Hellenius help you deepen your relationship with Christ and His Church, discussing practical ways to grow in faith, participate more fully in the liturgy, and practice charity towards all. Hello and welcome to Living Stones. I'm your co-host, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, and joining me in the virtual studios in beautiful South Bend, Indiana, is the only man who was who drove Herbie the Love Bug, drove him crazy, that is, Ken Hellenius. <laughs> Ken, how are you doing, my friend? I am uh, I'm very well. Very well. Herbie the Love Bug, one of the finest films Disney ever produced. <laughs> I mean, you could take all the Disney films, stack them up, and even if they had only produced a single Herbie the Love Bug, they would, they would be, uh, you know, worth everything. I have no clue what I just said about Herbie the Love Bug. <laughs> I, I honestly can't remember the last... The last time I saw Herbie the Love Bug, I know they did a whole new series with Lindsay Lohan and stuff like that in the early 2000s. They kind of rebooted it as uh, is so popular. But uh, yeah, Herbie the Love Bug. I just remember as one of my childhood memories, my mom used to take us to the movies when we were little. And it was her. And that was my introduction to Don Knotts, actually. Okay. That that was the first time I actually saw him in anything. And I just thought, this guy's a fool, you know, but, (laughs) (laughs) but he was so funny. And, you know, and that, and I I really enjoyed those as a, as a kid, those Herbie Lugbug movies. Yeah. Didn't it also have like Buddy Hackett in them or something? Yeah, Buddy Hackett was in them. And there was another guy, I forget the name of the, the main guy actually, who was the one who kind of drove Herbie and kind of was the main character. I forget, I forget who that guy was, but. Yeah, but I did enjoy those the the, the series as, as a kid because they would show them. It wasn't even at the movie theater. It was like at a public high school or something like that. It was like a, something for kids in the neighborhood, kind of stay out of trouble kind of thing and just come to the movies and they give you free popcorn and stuff like that. And yeah. Oh, th- there we go. The producer's holding up. Yep. There's Buddy Hackett. Yep. And, and who's on the left there? Now, friends, uh, I think what we've learned already uh, in in this show is if you watch Herbie, the love bug, you end up like Deacon Harold. <laughs> a friendly warning or an encouragement to you parents out there who are looking for, for, uh, you know, this is what happens. This is your kid on Herbie. It's, uh, it's more or less what we've, uh, what we've oh, oh, stone. So we'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Uh, but you know, can I have to say, you know, that, that old saying, they don't make movies like that anymore. That is just so true. Yep. Yep. You know, everything today, even if it's funny, it's a crude humor, you know, it's not, they have to curse or they have to hurt people. And and we think that's funny now. It's just not funny for the sake of being funny. You know, I mean, I I miss that, that, uh, that kind of comedy, you know, that, 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 those genre of movies, you know, Um, I, I'm with you. I, um, Julie and I have been watching uh, at dinner time each night. You know, uh, we're we don't have to sit around the table because we don't have a, a family that we want to provide an excellent uh, example to. So we sit, of course, in our easy chairs watching the show Mash, uh, oh. you know, classic sitcom Mash. And there are certainly parts of that in terms of like the relationships between the the um, doctors and the nurses that that do not hold up well in uh, in this day and age. I will say that. But there are also there are such wonderful puns and visual humor uh, that that just 
that really, I think, you know, you were kind of hinting at it. The, the humor then was different than it is now because they didn't yeah. have to swear. They didn't have to even approach that. They could use language in a way that actually made you enter into the hilarity of the moment. And of course, MASH was set in, you know, in the theater of war, in a hospital. Talk about stress and all these sorts of things. So you're you're getting the experience of gallows humor, I guess, is a bit of what what we might kind of refer to it. But uh, yeah, that's a show that uh, that we've um, kind of been enjoying watching. And you know, certainly it was one of the most beloved television shows of all time. Yeah, America. Yeah. One of my wife's favorites. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Good stuff. Well. Uh, but enough about, you know, quality entertainment. Let's talk about the truth. How about we do that, huh? <laughs> we have been, it's funny, you know, talking about uh, hospitals and, and kind of the, the um, stress and, and uh, of, of death, really, of pain and death. We have been discussing the last number of weeks uh, uh, Pope John Paul II's 1995 encyclical Evangelium Vitae uh, on the gospel of life. And we are going to pick up our conversation uh, this episode with paragraph 64. It is I who bring both death and life, quoting Deuteronomy 32, the tragedy of euthanasia. And so that's where John Paul is going to take the principles that we've been discussing uh, about so far. We've discussed abortion. We've discussed the absolute equality, uh, equal dignity of all human persons. And now we're going to talk about those uh, at the end of life uh, and kind of the situation uh, that surrounds this most fraught of, of uh, kind of situations that we all will face. Yeah, absolutely. And he names this right, the tragedy of euthanasia. And he does uh, something I think very wonderful here. He puts the whole thing in context and understanding, contemporary understanding of the nature of death. He says death becomes a, quote, rightful liberation once life is held to be no longer meaningful because it is filled with pain and inexorably doomed to even greater suffering. You see? So yeah. it doesn't look at the nature of the human person. It looks at the condition of the person. Right. You see? That's like, it's, it's, there's a parallel here in my mind between looking at a person and looking at a person's actions. Right? right? We, we, we need to look at the person and not to judge the person, but we judge actions, right? And here we have to look at the nature of the human person who is suffering, not and not the suffering itself, as if the suffering defines who the person is. And oh, because they're suffering so much, that person has less value. Oh, because they have this disease or because they're in such pain, they no longer have value as a person. That's the mistake that he draws out right at the beginning. Recently, I interviewed um, Carter Sneed, who is both uh, the director of the DeNicola Center, where I work at in Notre Dame. He also wrote a book about um, uh, about what it means to be aware of the body in and and when we're thinking about what a person is. And he very much talked about and kind of explored the idea of expressive individualism that is at the core of the American kind of approach to to life and to rights and saying that unless you 
are able to do things, unless you are able to express yourself, unless you are able to have cognitive powers, you are not fully a person. And so, you know, when we look at euthanasia, we're looking at people whose ability is perhaps diminished, you know, because of the the situation of their of their pain and their bodies beginning to break down. We look at those who maybe even are in a coma or those who whose pain is so powerful that they they struggle against that. And we on the outside as as Americans, the general approach is, well, as you said, Deacon, their value is less because they are not fully capable, just like you or I, who are walking around and able to do things. And so this is a completely in, inverted sense of, of the equal human dignity that we all share just by virtue of being, of being humans, you know? And so it's a really kind of interesting, John Paul II is making this exact same argument that it is the inherent human dignity of each and every person. What they don't, they, they don't need to be, as the um, society says, they don't need to be liberated from this, from this um, pain because they're in, uh, you know, because they're in pain. They need to be accompanied. They need to be walked with. We need to show mercy and misericordia and be friends with them and share their pain, not simply eliminate it by killing them. Yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, he makes a point here. Uh, one of the more alarming symptoms of the culture of death uh, is an attitude of excessive preoccupation with efficiency and which sees a growing number of elderly and disabled people as intolerable and too burdensome. See, that's the thing. Now, remember, we're talking about euthanasia here as opposed to assisted suicide, okay? So, so the difference is this. Assisted suicide is when you take medication or you take medication prescribed by a physician to kill yourself. Euthanasia is when someone else makes a decision to end your life because your life no longer has value. Okay, that, that's, what we're, that's what specifically the Holy Father is talking about here. What he's saying is that sometimes when people are elderly or disabled, that you're a burden on your family. You're a burden on society. You're a burden on the healthcare system. Right. You see, right. and, and therefore we have to, in order to be efficient, in order to stop the suffering, in order to reduce dollars expense, we just end your life. They'll make your family stop suffering. You'll stop suffering. You know, you won't be a burden, a financial burden on, on the system anymore. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on here. We've just turned people into machines. That's what happens with your car. Oh, you're not running anymore. We have to recycle, sell your parts. And so now we have to get another one. Or, or We can't think of human beings like machines. And that's the tendency that we have in our culture, particularly when they're at the end of their life span or they become disabled. Yeah, that's the um, instrumentality of, of persons and say, well, you're no longer useful to me. Therefore, we are going to we're going to eliminate you. And. In this next paragraph, 65, he talks about, again, this idea that the critical thing, though, you know, I don't want to leave the impression that the that the church and that that our moral teaching is that you need to just suffer with pain. Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely yeah. not. Pain is is something that we should work to alleviate as much as we can. Um, and at the same time, there are um, medical treatments and such that are considered too aggressive and are not the church doesn't require uh, and moral moral thought does not require that that any person seek 
um, aggressive medical treatment beyond what is what is normal. So he he explicitly says medical procedures with which no longer correspond to the real situation of the patient, either because they are by now disproportionate to any expected results or because they impose an excessive burden on the patient and his family in such situations. When death is clearly imminent and inevitable, one can in conscience refuse forms of treatment that would only secure a precarious and burdensome prolongation of life, so long as the normal care due to the sick person in similar cases is not interrupted. So you don't have to undergo chemotherapy, but you do have to continue to provide food and and hydration and and water to those and all the normal sorts of care that you would provide to anyone because those are basic basic you know aspects they are not the aggressive form of of uh, treatment that is not required in conscience yeah and so euthanasia then would not just be the actual action but the omission if you remove that food remove that water, you move that support um, from the person. That's also an act of euthanasia as well. So it's a commission and an omission as yeah. well. Yeah, but that's that's an excellent point, Ken. And, and uh, he goes on further in the paragraph. I, I, this is very important, I think. He says that Pius the Pius XII affirmed that it is licit to relieve pain by narcotics, even when the result is decreased consciousness or shortening of life. See, again, this is really important because this has to do with intention. He, he goes on to say, in such a case, death is not willed or sought. So you're not taking the narcotic in order to, to die. Right. You're taking it to relieve pain. Um, so you're, you're not willing yourself to die by taking the narcotic to relieve your suffering. Even It goes on, even though for reasonable motives, one runs the risk of it. There is simply a desire to ease pain effectively by using the analgesics which medicine provides. You see, that's critically important because if you take the narcotic and you die, you're not trying to kill yourself. See, this is the subtlety that the culture misses when it comes to these issues of, of medication and alleviating pain. You're not intending to kill the person. Yeah, and let's remember that the church is among the why uh, has has among the largest sources of healthcare in the United States if not the world the largest single providers are are connected to the catholic church many hospitals and healthcare systems bear the name franciscan sisters of providence you know what you are hearing is the church literally putting all of our resources at alleviating pain healing the sick doing what Christ himself did. Christ could heal the sick without medicine, right? We do it with the the wonderful gifts that God has given science to understand medicine and things like that. And the church has this wonderful system of providing support and care and relief of pain. So the church is not in the business of saying you simply need to suffer. No, by no means. We do at the same time expect that our healthcare systems will be in line with what is moral and and is within the bounds of conscience and that includes providing palliative care that alleviates pain but does not directly intend to kill the patient that's what he's talking about here and ultimately 
John Paul says a, a statement much like we read, uh, you know, last week when we were reading the infallible statements or the statements that point to authentic or authentic and authoritative magisterial teaching. And he says here in the end of paragraph 65, I confirm uh, taking into account these distinctions in harmony with the magisterium of my predecessors and in communion with the bishops of the church. So again, he's affirming that this is a universal teaching that is that has precedent. He's not just making it up on the go. He says, I confirm that euthanasia is a grave violation of the law of God, since it is the deliberate and morally unacceptable killing of a human person. This doctrine is based upon the natural law and upon the written word of God, is transmitted by the church's tradition and taught by the ordinary and universal magisterium. So this is an authoritative teaching by Pope St. John Paul II. Yes, absolutely. Is that a, a, a ordinary universal Episcopal magisterium. So this carries uh, definitely the weight of infallible papal teaching with it. So yeah. this is something that we need to take very, very seriously. Um and, and I hope that the people will go back and, and reread this paragraph, because, again, a lot of people are putting together, um, what is that, those end-of-life documents and statements that they yeah. get to the hospital? First, uh, uh, is one, you know, the uh, order for uh, life-saving treatment, physician's order for life-saving treatment, right. wills, these sorts yes, of things. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, and they specifically list out what kind of treatment to, to hold back extraordinary you know, means and, and things like that as well. This is, this is very personal for me because this is exactly what my father faced. And I was there at the hospital and, 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 uh, and the day that the, 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 the morning that, well, the afternoon that he died in the, in, before that in the morning, you know, we had met with the physicians. They had literally done everything they could do. I mean, they were giving him intravenous medic uh, food and stuff, but there it was having, nothing was having an effect on the situation. There, it, it got to a point in fact, they couldn't even give him more medication without destroying internal organs. So it got to a point where they, they reached the limit of what medical science could do. And all they were doing was prolonging the inevitable. Mm -hmm. So and I knew, I mean, from my from my background in theology, that that we, we were OK, you know, stopping the extraordinary care that he was being given. But because I was emotional, I called a priest friend of mine who was a medical ethicist and, and just confirmed with him. He goes, yep, you're good to go. And so confer with my siblings and we all agreed and, and they the nurses just started pulling all the stuff. And 1255 was when they pull out the last IV and he was just there on the bed. He was breathing and, and then, you know, um, they took out the, the breathing tube. And then at literally exactly three o'clock, he took his last breath and died. Wow. You know, so so I so, I, you know, I was actually here for 20 and I was there for the last 24 hours of my father's life. And. And to, to see the, the care he was being given, the machines breathing for him and all of that, then having to make the decision to move extraordinary care. This is very personal for me, this particular section, um, be, because I think the way we went about it was actually the way the church asked us to deal with this situation. You know, not to say, well, if he's just look at him, he's just laying there. He's no, he's not the same person he was when he when he was, you know, walking around. So just just end it. I mean, oh, yikes, man. Yeah, you know, he still has dignity as a person, as a child of God. Right. You know, that that's the piece that we absolutely cannot forget. Yes, we are overwhelmed with emotion sometimes. Um, we we hate seeing people that we love suffer. We wish we could take their place, especially when it comes to our children. You know, but we have to always remember that underneath all of that, 
the the foundation of all that is they are a human person made in the image and likeness of God, and that has to supersede everything else. Absolutely. And the situation that we're talking about here is direct euthanasia. Yeah. Um, which is, there's a contrast between that and physician-assisted suicide. Of course, the state of Oregon is at the forefront of the legislation, which has now reached, I believe, 10 states in the United States, 10 states and, and uh, District of Columbia. Um, and all of their laws are based upon the Oregon law. Yeah. Uh, and so John Paul, when he's writing this in 95, this was actually, if I remember right, this was like the year after the Oregon Death with Dignity law was passed. I think that was 1995. No, no, it was it passed in 95. I know that for sure because we moved to Oregon in 1995. Okay. And this is one of the things I will never forget. We were watching television and a commercial came on from the Hemlock Society because they were the ones who were pushing. The, right. Because it, it, was, it was on the ballot. there, And it, they literally said in the television commercial, don't let the Catholic Church tell you what to do. And I said, whoa, 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 hold on. They just called the church out. Yeah. On, te- on, on a television commercial. When it came to assistance, like, don't let the Catholic Church tell you what to do. I was like, whoa. I have never seen specifically mentioned a church like that in a television commercial for something that was immoral. Um, and of course we know what happened. You know, it was it was already on the ballot. They were pushing for it and it did pass. And Oregon became the first state in the United States that allowed for uh, assisted suicide. Yeah. But I, I don't see. I, but I don't see how, with good conscience, as a, as a physician, you can. When your job is to save and preserve life, improve the quality of life, write a prescription for someone to kill themselves. I, I, there's no way I could never do that. Never. This is what even Pope John Paul II mentions later in this document too, speaking specifically to physicians, calling them to be true to the oath that they take to be healers and not to create a a adversarial relationship with patients because that's essentially what it is, right? When you're like, well, my doctor will help me just so far and then then uh, I'll just have him, you know, give me the pills that I need to kill myself, you know? And that's the the real... That's and yeah, I mean, and think about like this, you know, we talk about the commandments, thou shalt not kill, right? Hold on now. You, but you're saying to yourself, well, wait a minute, they killed themselves. But you provided... It's like, Oh, someone just shot themselves in the head with a gun. You provide the gun. Does that make you culpable now for for that? You see, this is this big, this bigger questions here than just oh, I'm just giving them medication. They're actually doing it themselves. I'm not making them do it. They're doing it themselves. But you provided the means by which they took their own life, and you knew that by giving them that, that was their will and intention. You see, so there's a. It's not just as easy. As trying to write it off and say, well, they did it themselves. I, I just wrote the prescription. No, 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 no. Yeah. Not at all. The uh, idea of the doctor, you know, kind of prescribing these, even though the law makes okay, the law says it's okay to do that. And Supreme Court cases have affirmed that there is this right to die. And so doctors can't be prosecuted for that. But even that, you know, I think, uh, what do we, we call it material cooperation when, when somebody actually provides Yeah, the, it's, it's the called meat. actually proximate material cooperation. So, so proximate means that you're intending, you're intending to participate in this act, even though it's not formal cooperation, you are intentionally materially cooperating in this act. So, okay. yeah, so it would be approximate material cooperation in, in evil, 
which uh, the church is, uh, which is sinful in the eyes of the church. Absolutely. Well, I want to pick this conversation up again because we're not going to be able to finish everything about it tonight, but I did want to touch one thing that you mentioned before, and you were talking about as you were there in the room with your own father watching him die, um, the emotions that were running high in your own, in your- And my siblings, too. Because I I mean, it was my siblings and and watching them cry and and suffer and yell his name and stuff, you know, when he died. I mean, they yelled, pop, pop, you know. It was it was really that's that's the real stuff, man. That, that that's the tough stuff, you know. So yeah, and, and it's those emotions that we also need to be aware of when we discuss suicide, whether it be assisted suicide or the actual a person committing suicide without you know any any help. Um, we are also dealing with emotions and states of mental health that are. Um, impossible to see from the outside and impossible to fully enter. And the church, the church wants to recall to each and every one of us that we, our first approach needs to be compassion. It needs to be begging mercy for the person, mercy for ourselves who are there, who are, you know, in relationship with the person who's, who's dying or who is, is committed suicide or is, contemplating committing suicide, compassion and accompaniment are what we need to offer, not blame and, and, um, anger. Although those are natural, I mean, especially the anger and the, the shame, those are natural reactions, but the church wants to encourage us to remember compassion. And that's something that I want to leave us with as we kind of wrap up our conversation tonight. And we'll pick this up again in our next episode because we're not really done here. We need, we do need to talk about assisted suicide and, and those sorts of things, but we want to just encourage that you remember accompaniment and compassion uh, and mercy. These being the sorts of things that God always shows us. God shows us mercy. Christ came to be with us to show God's love and mercy in person. And so we, yeah. and, and one of the things that I did was, uh, I prayed the chaplet of divine mercy. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I paid, I prayed it twice. I, I decided to pray it every hour. So one o'clock, two o'clock. And as I was starting the third chaplet, that's when he died, you know, so he died the hour of mercy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. When so you, you said three PM. mercy is, but how can people stay in touch with us till next time, Ken? Yeah, so you'll find us on Facebook. Just type in Living Stones Media, and uh, you can download previous episodes of the show at materdeiradio.com. Deacon, might we have a blessing uh, to get us through the week? May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We'll see you next week here on Living Stones. You've been listening to Living Stones with Ken Hellenius and Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Living Stones is produced at the studios of Modern Day Radio in Portland, Oregon. For more information about this show, go to moderndayradio.com. That's M A T E R D E I radio.com.